I'm Laura Norton, and this is One Strange Thing, the show where we search the nation's news archives for stories that can't quite be explained. Strangers, if there's a category of spooky season story that we've covered the least, it might well be witches. If we are being honest, that's mostly because witch stories just aren't as timeless as, say, a possession or a haunting. It's hard to find contemporary reports of a witch in this day and age. Well, actually, we can find plenty of witches, whole Etsy shops even. And just to get this out of the way, we are aware of the witches of TikTok. Frankly, they frighten us. We wish them very, very well. But this isn't about them. In this case, we're referring to a certain strain of the supernatural. A witch in the legendary sense, with all the power of folklore and myth behind her. So why has the witch tale fallen out of fashion? Well, we can't say for sure. Of course, there's the fact that in this part of the world, the term has historically been used as a catch-all for women who society does not like. See Salem, Massachusetts. But there's also the fact that witches of legend have been thoroughly made a caricature. The pointy hats, the brooms, the green skin, the striped stockings. Without real-world tales of witchcraft popping up like a Bigfoot story might, it's easy to let that caricature take over the public consciousness. So today, strangers, we're tackling the often requested story of one of America's most famous spell-casting entities, the Bell Witch. We think that might shake things up a bit. Now, the story here actually starts well before our normal window. We do like to bring you 20th century-ish stories, and the Bell Witch is certainly older than that. Most retellings put her first appearance in the early 1800s. But the first newspaper article we could find in our archives is actually dated May of 1930. We'll take it. That article in the Knoxville Journal is not a Halloween puff piece. We're all for spreading the holiday out, but as it was published in May, that would seem a little uncouth. No, it seems the Knoxville Journal was reporting on the Bell Witch in springtime by apparent public demand. Quote, In the Southern press of recent weeks, no less than a dozen requests from readers asking for information on the Bell Witch of Robertson County, Tennessee, have been printed. As they say in radio, here it is. You might wonder, strangers, why no less than a dozen Southerners suddenly decided they needed more information about a century-old witch story in the month of May. We wonder that, too. In any case, those readers got what they were asking for because the Knoxville Journal published a downright comprehensive retelling of the Bell Witch story. Per the journal, the Bell family was a prominent one in Robertson County and had been for a long time. As the journal put it, quote, John Bell Sr. had settled in and prospered on the Red River. 
They were energetic farmers, members of the Baptist Church, and highly respected. And, per the Tennessean, John Bell was a steady, austere presence. Quote, He was, from all accounts, a man of unimpeachable character. He lived up to every responsibility as a citizen, a neighbor, churchman, husband, and father. But sometime in 1818, local reporting, which several articles mention but we ourselves couldn't find, picked up on something mysterious happening to the Bells. At this point, the Bell family was large. John Bell, his wife Lucy, and their children. According to the Tennessean, there were nine Bell children in all. Jesse, John Jr., Drury, Benjamin, Esther, Zadok, Elizabeth, Richard, and Joel. Hark, how many Bells. Anyway, in 1818, each member of the Bell family caught on to something strange. According to the journal, for a year or so previous to this time, the Bells had been hearing unexplainable rappings and tappings about their home. When finally the children began to be disturbed by this malign spirit, they were enjoined to secrecy by their father. For our listeners not in the South, it's very important to note that this is a very Southern response to a hostile ghost. The Nashville Banner even wrote that the family, quote, spoke of it as our family trouble. But the secrecy didn't last. According to the journal, the sounds became unbearable and word got out. And eventually, the rapping and tapping weren't the only sounds. There were scratching sounds, like rats in the walls, as well as, quote, occasionally a noise like the smacking of lips, and then a gulping sound as though someone choked or strangled. That's all plenty unsettling, if you ask us. But don't worry, it also gets worse. Because, as the journal reported, whatever was behind these disturbances was also picking favorites. Or, rather, least favorites. Elizabeth, the Bell's youngest daughter, was often a target. Per the journal, quote, Elizabeth was disturbed more than the others. Her hair was pulled when she retired. She was often slapped and spanked by some invisible force. At one point, a pious neighbor came over to the house and read some Bible verses at whatever was causing this. And that seemed to put a stop to the shenanigans. But only for a short time. And so, strangers, you might wonder, these sound like the actions of a perfectly serviceable ghost. But where's the witch? To which we respond, be patient. See, as the haunting continued, the spirit responsible seemed to get stronger and stronger until after about a year of harassing the bells, it developed a voice. According to the Tennessean, that voice started as a whisper before growing to a full-throated female voice. And it was that voice and its accompanying personality that became known as the Bell Witch. And why a witch instead of a ghost? Well, her capabilities certainly surpassed those of your run-of-the-mill spirit. And we know this because she kept it up for years. Per the Des Moines Register, 11 to be exact. That's a long time for one family to be haunted. And a long time for the Bell Witch to be
to come up with new and exciting tricks. For one, she could talk, and multiple members of the family, they could hear her. But she had other gifts, too. According to the journal, quote, She was the embodiment of mischief, but often she essayed the role of the prophet. She told the family where to go and where not to go. She produced grapes out of the air for favored members of the family. She told the innermost secrets of those she disliked. And according to the Tennessean, quote, She foretold the weather, volunteered valuable information of a technical nature at quilting parties, repeated sermons, and revealed personal secrets. Lots to unpack there, but to us, this sounds an awful lot like a 19th century Siri with a little more punch. And yes, we do have more examples. On the prophecy front, according to the journal, the witch once said that John Bell Jr. should not go on a hunting trip that he had planned because it would be expensive and useless. John went on that trip anyway, and six months later, he returned to Tennessee empty-handed. At one point, the witch convinced the Bell's pious neighbor to dig up a buried treasure on nearby land, and then mocked him when it turned out there was no treasure. As the journal wrote, the witch developed a strong disliking for this neighbor and would pick fights with him whenever he was over, mostly about religion. And the youngest Bell daughter, Elizabeth, also known as Betsy, continued to be the butt of the witch's poking and her prodding. Per the Tennessean, toward the latter part of the witch's career, she took to shouting obscenities at Betsy and her fiancé, Joshua Gardner. Eventually, the unwelcome third party in the relationship drove Joshua to the brink, and the couple separated. With a family as prominent and well-respected as the Bells, this was big news. And frankly, any unrest in their home was too. So, word traveled, first throughout Robertson County and then throughout Tennessee. And according to the register, within a few years, most of the country knew about the witch. She kind of had a moment. Visitors would trickle in to see, or really to hear, the witch at work, and she would oscillate between pleasant and unpleasant, seemingly at random. Per the Tennessean, quote, She kept visiting Englishmen, come to investigate the mystery, informed of the news at home, and even served as a sort of spiritual telephone between him and his distant mother. But, on the other hand, there were stories of the witch acting out, including in front of some very important guests. Per the Des Moines Register, quote, General Andrew Jackson, later president, heard of its visitations, came to see for himself, and laughed till tears rolled down his cheeks when the ghost drove a boasting member of his own party out into the night, hysterically frightened. And the Montgomery Advertiser wrote that the witch was truly at the top of her game that night. Quote, she sang, swore, threw dishes, overturned furniture, and snatched the bedclothes from all the beds. The next morning, Andrew Jackson turned tail and fled. As old Hickory left, he shouted to John Bell, I would rather fight the British again than have any more dealings with that torment. But there was one person who the witch seemed to choose as her favorite. John Bell's wife, Lucy. As the journal wrote, quote, the Bell Witch had a fondness for Lucy, who she called 
loose. Once, when Mrs. Bell was sick, the witch brought her nuts from the forest, which dropped from the air. Once, when Mrs. Bell inquired whether Jessie Bell, who lived a mile distant, had come, the obliging witch said, Wait a minute, Luce, I'll go and see for you. A minute later, the witch reported that he was at home. Jessie Bell said later that his door opened and closed at that time. Lucy's husband, John Bell, did not fare so well. Kind of the opposite, in fact. Per the journal, quote, The witch hounded John Bell to his death. The witch absolutely loathed John Bell Sr. Per the journal, in 1835, he had begun to have episodes that sounded like an allergic reaction, quote, a swelling of the tongue and twitching of the face, which would allegedly be present near his bed and continuously shout threats and obscenities. The witch also took to more physical violence, like yanking John Sr. around and even dealing him blows to the face. Eventually, John Bell Sr. became bedridden, and during a particularly worrisome stupor, a doctor was called. According to the register, when the doctor came to call, he found that the medicine he had prescribed John was not in the cabinet, but it had been replaced with a bottle of an unknown dark liquid. The doctor, not sure what this liquid was, but certain that he did not prescribe it, took the very 19th century tact of testing it out on a house cat who promptly died. And before anyone could do much else, John Sr. died too. And the witch was not especially kind about that. According to the journal, she reportedly shouted this as the man lay dying. I've got him this time. He'll never get up from that bed. I put that medicine there last night, and I gave him a dose of it while he was asleep. We have to imagine that this was followed up by a great sneering cackle of some kind, but we'll save your ears the pain of attempting that ourselves. The Bell Witch did not soften her stance once John Sr. was dead. She reportedly tagged along for his funeral service and was mostly well-behaved at the cemetery, until, during a quiet moment, mourners heard her loudly begin singing a drinking song. And accomplishing that grotesque goal seemed to finally satisfy the witch. Per the journal, she bade Lucy a fond farewell and said it was time for her to leave for a few years. And strangers, it does appear that the witch left. Whether she ever came back is inconsistent in the articles we read, but some, like in the Tennessean, say that she did reappear to Lucy seven-odd years later, just to say hello. Some other accounts, like the one from the Nashville Banner, say that the witch promised to come back to the Bell family in 100 years, but 1935 came and went with no sightings. And in all cases... There are no further accounts of her causing distress, death, or anything else in that realm for the Bell family. And indeed, by 1930, five years before the 100-year anniversary, the witch had become a famous local legend, and a beloved one, which is surprising given the whole 
kind of killed a prominent member of the community thing. But that was no longer of much concern, because the locals in Robertson County love talking about the witch, with both belief and good-natured skepticism. As the journal cheerfully concluded in its article on the witch, quote, Ask Colonel Limbell, most celebrated of the Bell family, about witches, and he will wisecrack in the 20th century manner that the only spirits in Robertson County are brought to town in fruit jars. And on that note, strangers, let's talk skepticism, because there were those, even in the 1800s, who suspected that the Bells were faking this whole thing as a ploy to make money. But, as the journal points out, the Bells invited the public into their home to see and hear the witch's activity, and they never charged a penny for that privilege. And, as we've demonstrated, the witch kept the Bell family plenty occupied, to the point where managing a tourist trap seemed, well, unlikely. There's not really a ton of time for bookkeeping while an omniscient spirit is slowly choking out your patriarch. Did the story become popular? Yes, certainly. But it wasn't because the Bells were out there promoting it. Remember, they would have actually preferred that nobody know about what was going on in their home. But even without knowing how the witch went the 19th century version of viral, it's not really hard to imagine why. The story covers both the malicious and the mischievous. One finds the witch endearing at the same time that they find her, well, justifiably, very frightening. And then there's the mystique of it all. A nebulous spirit doesn't usually have so much power, and one of those popping up to upset a perfectly nice family without seemingly any rhyme or reason is interesting. Usually, there's a much clearer through line from tragedy or misdeed to a haunting. Whoever the witch's soul might have belonged to, if anyone, seems to have just ended up with the bells. Maybe you could call it cosmic chance. Or you could, except for one strange thing. There actually is a fairly good guess as to who the bell witch might have been in her mortal era. For that story, we need to travel all the way back to the early 1800s again, to John Bell's arrival in Tennessee. According to the Montgomery Advertiser, soon after arrival, he made a transaction with one Mrs. Kate Betts. Kate owned the property next door to land that already belonged to the Bells, so that purchase made logistical sense. But it was marred by the fact that Kate Betts was temperamental, erratic, and just generally kind of angry. So, per the advertiser, almost the moment the deal was done and her land was sold, Kate insisted that she had been given a bad deal, to anyone who would listen, for years. So certain was she that she'd been cheated that, even on her deathbed, the advertiser wrote that she swore, quote, to haunt John Bell and all his kith and kin to their graves. Word of this must have gotten back around to the Bells, because when their haunting issues started happening a few years later, they actually gave the witch a nickname, Kate. 
None of the sources we saw ever clarify whether this was just a snarky inside joke or a more serious realization that Kate Batts had not been kidding. But a good portion of the sources we read, including the advertiser, take that connection as fact. We wonder, too, if there's a version of the story where the witch introduced herself as Kate, which would have certainly driven that connection home. But no such retelling exists, as far as we can tell. And in any case, outside of a shared name and the vow to cause a haunting, there are details here that don't quite fit. The human Kate did not have a soft spot for Lucy Bell, for instance, and the witch never mentioned anything about any transaction or her human life, if, indeed, she'd ever been human. And, actually, there's not any real consensus on whether she was human. The Knoxville Journal quotes the witch as saying at one point, I am a spirit. I was once very happy, but I have been disturbed. If you're hoping the spirit witch might then have elaborated on her backstory a little more, you're out of luck. All these vagaries once again beg the question, strangers, could this whole thing have been a hoax? There were certainly plenty of alleged witnesses to the witch's shenanigans, so that's a point against it just being a Bell family bit. But, as the advertiser wrote, it wouldn't actually be outside the realm of possibility for a dedicated prankster to take this on as a project. And it might even have been the grim, pious John Bell himself. Quote, Early Tennesseans like to play in joke. Early Tennesseans also like to tease their pretty daughters, as the Bell Witch teased lovely Betsy Bell. The early Tennesseans held their wives in too much reverence to make them the butts of practical jokes, and it is noted that the Bell Witch was very kind to Mrs. Bell. But even this, strangers, doesn't make much sense to us. Say that John Bell, who again, had zero reputation for mischief, was a talented ventriloquist and could throw his voice to make the illusion of a spirit. What do we make of the floating and flying household objects, the conjured grapes? What about the instances where the witch was present, but John wasn't? And how could John have kept up this bit at his own funeral, before the age of pre-recorded messages from the beyond? Why would he have made himself, very clearly, the victim of unrelenting abuse? What could the endgame have possibly been? Strangers, we will not tell you that a hoax is impossible. It's not, of course. But it does seem unlikely that John Bell was the culprit. And, in that case, who was? As we said at the beginning of the show... We think there are good reasons that witch stories don't crop up much in the archives. But that makes our pool for comparison very, very small. And that, in turn, makes it harder to make sense of this story. So, we cannot debunk this one. And in the spirit of the season, we won't try. After all, if the Bell Witch is still floating around out there somewhere... Well, we would hardly want to offend.
We hope you'll join us next time for another real-life story from the fine print of America's local papers, from the lives of regular people, just like you and me, except for one strange thing. Strangers, I've released my first book, and it's available now as an audiobook, hardcover, and ebook. It actually came out today. It's called Lay Them to Rest, and it's about John and Jane Doe's, my years-long experience following forensic experts around the country, and our efforts to solve the mystery of a cold case. One Strange Thing is an independently produced podcast. To support the show and to hear more of the entirely true and enticingly peculiar, you now have three options to enjoy two extra bonus episodes a month. On Apple Premium and Supercast, you can get the bonus episodes delivered to your app of choice for just $2.99. And for $2 more a month on Patreon, you'll get more fun extras. There you'll find ad-free early releases of our regular episodes, two full-length bonus episodes, monthly giveaways, blog posts, and occasional live streams, all for $5 a month. We hope you'll check out one of these options and support the show. There's a link in our show notes. And if you enjoy One Strange Thing, please take a moment to leave us a great rating or review on your favorite podcast app. It really helps. <laughs>